Our sermon text for today is out of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In the year 1509, one of the most important monarchs in history rose to the throne of England. His name was Henry VIII. He was crowned after the death of his father, Henry VII. Shortly after being crowned the king of England, Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon. She, was, she had royal blood herself. She was the daughter of the king of Aragon, and her mother was the queen of Castile. Henry and Catherine had a daughter. They named her Mary. You probably know her by the name of Bloody Mary, or Mary I. She went on to persecute and kill hundreds of Protestants in England. Henry desired to have a male heir from Catherine, however. But they were never able to have a son. This led Henry to seek an annulment for their marriage as he firmly believed that it was Catherine's fault that they were unable, they were not able to have a male heir. England was a Catholic country, and in the early 1500s, divorce was unthinkable. So a great feud grew between Henry and the Pope. Henry determined to divorce his wife. He broke away, therefore, with the Catholic Church and founded his own church, the church that he made himself the head of. This gave birth to the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church. It's a sad story. It's one of those sad stories from the Reformation. Henry VIII went on to have six wives, he divorced three of them and had two of them killed. The last one outlived him. And really, the, the Anglican Church has been a powerhouse for Protestant purposes over the centuries. If you read a King James or a New King James version of the Bible, you can think an Anglican for that. But its, beginning, its beginnings are unfortunate, are shameful. A king who was more interested in his legacy than in obedience to God's word. I realize today's text addresses an issue that is in many ways delicate. It was delicate during the time of Jesus, it was delicate during the Protestant Reformation, and it is delicate in our time. 
I did not begin my week thinking, what should I preach on, and landed on this text. No, addressing issues like marriage and divorce is a byproduct of preaching sequentially and exegetically through books of the Bible. One of the reasons why we embrace this kind of preaching is because it keeps us from preaching only those things that we enjoy or know about. Every week, I begin from, a, from an empty slate all over again because I'm asking the question, what does God want me to say to Central Baptist Church and not what do I want to say to Central Baptist Church? So I want to approach this text with sensitivity. Understanding that one can hardly find a family today in our society and even in our very church that is unaffected in some way by divorce. Some, some of us, are affected in very direct ways, others less. But it is virtually impossible to find those in our society today that are untouched by divorce. So there are two extremes that I want to avoid today. One is looking at the divorce as the unforgivable sin. I, I do not want to do that because it is not the unforgivable sin. As a matter of fact, we're going to see this later, the Bible even at times makes provision for divorce. It is possible to be a complete victim when it comes to divorce. On the other hand, I want to avoid the thought that divorce is ultimately good. It is not. It is not God's purpose and it is not God's design. Even when lawful, as we are going to see in our text today, divorce tears asunder what God has put together. So if you have been affected by divorce, I want you to know that I have been praying for you this week. My desire is that this message will help you be whole and not broken. I pray that you would leave today encouraged and not discouraged. We're all broken in different ways. But when we run to Jesus, he can mend our broken lives. If you're here with us today and you're married, but you are contemplate, contemplating divorce, my hope is that this message will help you say no. Faithfulness is possible. I will pursue it at all costs. If you're struggling in your marriage, can I encourage you to just reach out to me? Reach out to your deacon. Reach out to a mature believer that can help you. Call the office. Make an appointment with me. Let's find grace to help us all in the time of need together. Finally, if you are not married and you are about to check out and think this message is not for me, don't. You may be married in the future. And considering the importance of marriage today will help you fight for faithfulness in the future. And even if you are single and unmarried, understand, and, and you may remain single and unmarried for the rest of your life, right? that, is, that is a possibility. Understanding the biblical teaching on marriage can help you help others. Some of the greatest help that we have in the Bible about marriage comes to us from the Apostle Paul, who was not married himself. So 
So even if you're not married, pursue the knowledge and understanding because you're part of a church and you can help us, you can help those who are married pursue faithfulness in Christ as well. We may feel inclined to come to this text with a preconceived idea on the issue of marriage and divorce. And this is exactly what we're going to see the Pharisees do today. We do not want to do that. We want to allow God, His Word, Jesus, and His wisdom to shape our minds and to shape our hearts. So even if this message meets you at a place that makes you feel uncomfortable today, let me encourage you to not seek to shape the Word of God according to your own wisdom, but as we just sang, may God's wisdom be our wisdom. May the Word of God shape us even where we may feel uncomfortable. I remember years ago asking my former pastor back then for advice on something that, was, that I had to do that was unpleasant. But I knew it was the right thing to do and biblical. So I told him, this is the right thing to do, so I must do it. And I completely detached my statement from God's purpose for obedience. So my pastor gently helped me understand that whatever God calls us to do always ultimately leads to our good. It is ultimately beneficial, best, and leads to joy. And I think this is the main point of our passage today. The Pharisees wanted to justify themselves morally by finding legal ways to distort God's design in marriage. But Jesus helps us understand that God's purpose in our lives, though often difficult and challenging, ultimately lead us to flourishing. God's purposes always lead us to flourishing. So as we turn to our text today, we'll consider three points. One, the wrong question. Two, we'll consider an inadequate provision. And finally, we'll consider the beauty of marriage. So first, the wrong question. In verse 1, we get a little bit of geographic movement here. Remember, geography is important for Mark. Jesus spent most of his ministry thus far in the region of Galilee. Some of the movement in this region seemed a bit random. He would go to Decapolis. He would come back to Capernaum. He went off to just south of Lebanon for a bit. He went to Nazareth. But after Jesus traveled north with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8, and Peter recognized him there as the Messiah, uh, the direction has become very intentional. Jesus has led his disciples to follow him south towards Jerusalem, and we are only a couple dozen verses away from finally arriving in Jerusalem. And this will be our last geographical movements until Jesus is crucified. Our last geographical reference, however, was back in chapter 9, verse 33. There we're told that Jesus and his disciples, as they made their way south from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem, they stopped in Capernaum. So this was many of the disciples' hometown, the region of Galilee. So now they pick up. They pick up from Capernaum and keep their journey south. In chapters 8 through 10, so this is one section, chapters 8 through 10, and the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is emphasizing the gospel and discipleship. So he does this by enveloping principles of discipleship for the Christian life within predictions of his passion. So back in chapter 8, he predicted his death and resurrection. And then he went on to teach the disciples. In chapter 9, he did the same thing. I think in, chapter, in verse 30 through 33, he predicted his death and resurrection. And then he went on to teach the disciples. 
In chapter 10, at the end, he'll do the same thing. He'll predict his death and resurrection. And then they will finally arrive in Jerusalem. So the intertwined discipleship that we see are first about humility in chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Then about unity, verses 38 through 41. And then holiness that we saw last week, 32 through 50. And today, Jesus is teaching on the family, marriage and divorce. Next week, he will teach on, in two weeks, I'm sorry, because Donnie Lag will be preaching next week for us. In two weeks, we'll see him preaching on um, ministry to t- children. And then finally, he will teach on stewarding possessions. So now... As Jesus went to the region of Judea, we see the crowds. The crowds that surrounded him, and he began to teach the crowds, as he often did. There are three, there are three collective characters in the Gospel of Mark that help us understand uh, how to receive the message of Mark. One of them, and we're going to see all three of them in our text today. One of them are Jesus' enemies. Those are the sons of the devil. Those are the the Pharisees, right? Jesus tells them in in the Gospel of John, your father, the devil, right? You're a liar because you're of your father, the devil. We do not want to be like the Pharisees. There's another group, the crowd. The crowd looks intrigued. They want some benefits. They see that it's, it's interesting to be around Jesus, but they, they don't fully commit. Out of the crowd, some, some will follow, others will leave. So, so the crowd is much like the world that is wondering about Jesus. But then there are the disciples. And the disciples just get such a bad rap here, right? They say the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. But ultimately, we see that the disciples follow Christ. So, Mark wants us to see the disciples and be like them. Filled with flaw, filled with sins and misunderstandings about Jesus, but always persevering in our pursuit of Christ. In verse 2, the teaching of the crowd is interrupted. It's interrupted by his enemies, the Pharisees. If you remember, Pharisees were a religious group and they had great zeal for the law, as we're going to see today. But they had made the law an end in itself. The law became their God rather than God himself. They were often lawyers, so it's no wonder they were so interested in matters of the law they believed that god would send the messiah once israel became obedient to the law so they would sacrificially obey the law and demand others to do the same so in doing that they missed that god had sent the messiah not because they had obeyed the law but because they couldn't obey the law. So God sent his Messiah in order to fulfill the law. They believed that the law was the end in itself. But Paul tells us that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the purpose. Christ is why the law exists, so that a spotlight would be placed On the righteous one. We can be like the Pharisees sometimes, can't we? We can think that God's blessing, his favor towards us, will be a result of our obedience. We can think that success at work, a good family, model children will come to us if we do those religious things that the law demands of us. We can think that God deals with us According to the law, we think the favors from God become unlocked through 
obedience. Well, friends, that's the law. But we need gospel. We need gospel. So the Pharisees ask him, is it lawful? Hear that word? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And friends, this was the wrong question. I think this was the wrong, questions for two, for, wrong question for two reasons. First, the question was designed to test Jesus. Jesus was always open to honest and sincere questions. We just saw him answer a question from John that was wrong, but he welcomed the interaction. Even unbelievers like Nicodemus and the rich young ruler would approach Jesus and have their questions Answer, we see God wrestling with Jacob in the Old Testament. We see God wrestling with Job in the Old Testament. God is not afraid of questions. God welcomes our fears and our doubts. And as a matter of fact, it is when we wrestle through these with God that we find assurance. But this question was different. It was not sincere or honest. It was designed to trap Jesus. It was designed to test Jesus. Interesting that the devil tried to do the same thing with Jesus earlier on. Right? He wanted Jesus to put God to the test. So he tempted Jesus. We see in the Gospel of Mark, or Matthew, Jesus says to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Pharisees are just doing what they do naturally. Acting like their father, the devil. They want to put Jesus to the test. But this question was also wrong because it assumed that morality was born out of the law. Now, though the law of God is moral, we're going to see that morality is actually born out of the nature of God and not the law. Paul says in Romans 5.20, Now the law came to increase trespass. That's the purpose of the law. Not to give righteousness, but to increase trespass. The law was given so our sins could be Revealed. You don't obey the speed limits by simply looking at the speed limit sign. By simply saying that the speed limit sign is good. No, the speed limit sign reveals when we're breaking speed limit laws. The law in itself does not cause us to be righteous. The purpose of the law is not boasting. On the contrary, the law humbles us. I was sharing the gospel with a Jewish friend a few years ago, and he was very proud of the law. He told me that he could recite the law by memory in three different languages. And he asked me which one I wanted him to recite it in. I said English, because none of the languages that he knew by memory I knew. So we stuck to English. And he began reciting the law to me. And I started stopping him. I stopped him at the end of every commandment. And in, in light of what I learned from Ray Comfort, I started asking you, how are you doing with that? And he said, yeah, I don't worship any God other than one true God. Well, how are you doing with uh, building images and bowing before carved image. I don't do that. Keep the Sabbath? Oh, for the most part. Honor father and mother? For the most part. Until we got to the question of adultery, and I knew that he had committed adultery in the past, and when I asked him, how are you doing with that in your life? You know what he told me? Well, these are ancient laws that don't bear weight on me anymore. Do you know what happened? He felt the shame of sin being revealed. And the law fulfilled its purpose. So I pointed him to Christ. I said, it indicts you, but it indicts me too. 
So don't boast on the law, but run to the one who fulfilled it. The law was not given so we could look at it and see our righteousness. The law was given so our sin could be revealed. The law is a mirror. You know, many musicians here today, right? We all know what a metronome is for, don't we? A metronome is a tool that musicians use that it does just one thing. It beats. It beats with precise rhythm. Now, you could have 10 metronomes in your home. You could have the metronome app. You could go to sleep with a metronome playing in your ear. But friends, here's what the metronome does. It does not give you the right rhythm. It reveals when your rhythm is wrong. That's what the law does. The law just beats the righteousness of God before us and reveals in our hearts how we are wrong and must be made right before God. So at the heart of this interaction, there is a question of legality. There's a question of the law. But what is legal is not necessarily moral, right? We can think of many laws in our very country that legislate that which is immoral, can't we? So sometimes there is a distinction between legal and moral. And we're going to see that the law provided an inadequate solution for the problem that was raised. So let's consider now an inadequate, an inadequate provision. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 3. He asks, what did Moses command you? So Jesus initially goes to the law, doesn't he? He asks about Moses. We're told that the law came through Moses, through intermediaries. But he will use it in a surprising way. The Pharisees respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away. Back in Deuteronomy 24, Moses did write a clause where he allowed for divorce. But there was, during the time of Jesus, great disagreement on what Moses actually meant. There were two schools of thought. Some follow a rabbi called Shammai. This was a very conservative rabbinical house. They believed that Moses allowed divorce in the case of adultery only. Okay. Others followed a rabbi called Hillel. Hillel was a liberal house. It's been the same way from the beginning, friends. It's liberal and conservatives. They believed Moses allowed divorce for any reason. Even if the wife simply burned the food, a husband could divorce his wife. As long as the husband was displeased, he could send his wife away. So here is the trap that they set up. If Jesus said there is no divorce, okay, they would be able to say, you're contradicting Moses. You can't be of God because you're contradicting the law of Moses. On the other hand, if Jesus said divorce is allowed in all circumstances, they would say, you have no morals. You see? So they think that they've placed Jesus in a checkmate. But Jesus completely avoids the trap and indicts them in their sin. He says in verse 5, Because of the hardness of your heart, you wrote this commandment. So this commandment does not emanate from God's perfect, eternal law. It is a response to hearts that are hardened. Jesus is saying this commandment is necessary because your hearts are wicked. So Jesus is really saying here, divorce is not God's plan, but a provision that was made. However, do not confuse this provision for God's purpose. No, this provision shows the sin that dwells within. 
So it, became, it becomes so clear and easy now for us to see what Paul means when he said to the Galatians, what then is the law? It was added because of transgression. Do you see that? The law was added because of sin. Before sin, there was no need for the law. So because your hearts are hardened, the law was added. That's what Paul is saying. But notice what Paul says here. Until, right? There's an end to this. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who is this offspring? It is Christ. Singular. One offspring. The offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ himself. The law was added because transgression was there. But Jesus, Jesus had a better solution for transgression than the law. This means until the coming of Christ, hearts were hardened and there was no adequate solution. The law couldn't change hearts. But Jesus came to transform the hearts of men. Listen to the great promise that we have in the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant, right? We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And listen to why that's possible here in this great promise in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart. That's what the Pharisees needed. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. I will remove the hardened hearts. From your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. Listen to how obedience now to the law is no longer, is no longer external but internal. And I will cause. Obedience comes from Christ. Obedience comes from the change that Christ brings about in our hearts. I will cause you. To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Pharisees needed their hearts changed. They needed to exchange their hearts of stone and receive a heart of flesh. They needed to move from the old covenant into the new covenant. And they could only receive that from Christ. But this very Christ, there was their only hope. They rejected. God's purpose for marriage is the pursuit of faithfulness and sacrifice, and only Christ, only in Christ, these things are ultimately possible. So the, the Pharisees comes asking, is it lawful? Can we divorce our wives? And Jesus is saying, oh friend, you need me. What you need is me in your life. So you can have the grace that is necessary so that this question is not even in your mind. So that this question doesn't even need to be brought up. Marriage is a relationship between two sinners who are constantly in pursuit of grace. Biblical marriage is a relationship where a husband daily learns to forgive and forbear. Biblical marriage is a relationship in which a wife daily learns to forgive and forbear. Why? Because... They've experienced this forgiveness and this forbearance from Christ. The gospel is at the center of marriage. The sacrifice of Christ is at the center of marriage because Jesus sets the example that we need for marriage. How? By marrying himself to the unfaithful ones. By giving up his life in order to Make his bride beautiful, sinless, spotless. So Jesus dies to give us hope and to give us a path to follow. So that we may not look at marriage and say, how can I get out of it? And instead ask, how can I stay in it? How can I persevere in it? So friends, we need to know that we're married to Christ. We need to know that Christ gave himself up for us so that we could learn what faithfulness is. Why do I pursue faithfulness to my wife day in and day out? Because Jesus 
is faithful. I'm not looking to provisions in the law for me to figure out what my marriage should be like. I'm looking to Christ, the husband of the church, who even when the church is sinful and unfaithful, he keeps pursuing her. Friends, we need to give ourselves to this sweet Savior who is Christ. And we need to learn from Him. If you're not a believer, we want you to know that, friends, you have a faithful, you can have a faithful Savior in Christ if you turn to Him and confess your sins. And by doing that, you can learn faithfulness. So Jesus completely redirects this whole scenario here. And he paints a beautiful picture of marriage to every, for everyone to hear. So let us consider the beauty of marriage. So Jesus redirects the eyes of the Pharisees from the law to creation. And, and that's, that's always a good idea. In creation, Genesis 1 and 2, God has already told us all that we need to know to live godly and faithful lives. Why? Why should we be faithful? Because God who made us is faithful. Why should we uphold the dignity of human life? Because God imprinted His image in every person. Why should we be good stewards of, create, of, of, the, of this earth? Because God commanded us to subdue it and exercise dominion over it. Friends, every question of morality that we have can be answered from these two chapters of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2. God imprinted His eternal law in creation. So why was it wrong for Cain to kill Abel? Not because there was a commandment given in Exodus 20 that said, Thou shalt not commit murder. But because God created Abel in His image, and Cain had no right to infringe that image. Do you see the morality of God emanating from Genesis 1 and 2? So Jesus wants us to look at creation in order to understand God's purposes for all things, including marriage, including the way we relate to one another. Notice that Jesus says in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God, Jesus is quoting Genesis 1 here. And he's pointing out that the institution of marriage is at the center of creation. It's very important that we understand this. At the center of creation, Jesus put marriage so that creation could keep creating itself. You see? That's why the commandment of being fruitful and multiply is there several times in Genesis 1 and 2. And friends, this is why it is so problematic for Christians to embrace an evolutionary worldview. Darwinian evolution denies that in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. In Darwinian evolution, men and women are incidental characters in history, and marriage is a byproduct of biological and sociological Needs billions of years after the beginning of creation, after chaos and death already reigned on earth, even before sin came into the world, man came to be. But this is not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus is not saying that at all. Jesus believes that men and women were created and marriage was instituted in the beginning. In the beginning of creation. You see how this is different from what Jesus is saying. And do you see how, not viewing it this way, we downplay the importance of marriage. We downplay that which God says is of utmost, utmost importance. The biblical worldview gives humans such great value and dignity, and therefore we should embrace Jesus' worldview. The biblical worldview gives marriage such great value and dignity, and therefore we should embrace 
Jesus' worldview. So Jesus now in verse 7 quotes Genesis 2. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So this means that marriage is not a contract, but a covenant. A relationship that is not based on rules. The Pharisees were looking for rules. But a relationship that is instead based on promises. This is important because while the Pharisees were looking for a way to soften the rules of marriage, Jesus pointed them towards the promises that uphold marriage. While the Pharisees were asking, is it lawful to end a marriage? Jesus was saying, it is right to to persist in the promises made in marriage. And what are these promises? To leave and to hold fast. A man must leave his father and mother. When he does that, he is leaving one family in order to create another. This creates a disruption, doesn't it? A disruption of one family, but so that another family can be formed. The family is complete with husband and wife. Children are an important addition to the family, but they do not make a couple a family. So stop asking couples, when are you going to start a family? The family was formed when the husband left one family and created another with his wife. Listen to, prophet Ma- to the prophet Malachi. Did he not make them one? Right? Do you see that? Them, that's one family. With a portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, God's purpose was always to take two and create one. You know, sometimes people bring about the question, but don't we see polygamy in the Bible? Yes, we do. We see polygamy in the Bible. But as a description, never as a prescription, Never as something that God is saying, you should pursue that. How do I know that? Because I'm looking at God's design of marriage in creation, and I'm seeing two becoming one flesh. So all sexual activity should be reserved for marriage. Any Any sexual activity outside of marriage is a perversion of God's design. When an unmarried man has sex with an unmarried woman, it's not marriage. That's a sin. It's fornication. And that should not be the case. Instead, a man should leave his father and his mother and unite himself to his wife. So the establishment of a family is the union between a husband and wife. God establishes this union with a portion of his spirit, and the purpose is to continue creation by the production of a godly offspring. Children are tied to the purpose of marriage. Therefore, a marriage can only be between a man and a woman. We should desire them. We should have them. Our church does well in this criteria, don't we? However, we recognize that fruitfulness is not dependent on childbearing. The church is a place where the barren and the single can be very fruitful. They can find great fulfillment in serving others and in finding children in the church that they can serve and that they can love on. So, so find encouragement even if you don't have children in the church. But a man must also hold fast to his wife. There's a sexual element here. But most importantly, there is an allegiance element here. When a husband holds fast to his wife, their relationship is the most important relationship there is. Love your spouse more than you love your parents. Because you've left them. Love your spouse more than you love your friends. Love your spouse more than you love your children. Why? Because they will likely leave you one day. And your spouse will remain. 
You're raising your children so they can leave. But you're married to a spouse so you can stay. Your children need you to have a right order of loves in your home. Husbands, your children need you to love your wife more than you love them. Wives, your children need you to love your husband more than you love them. I've seen marriages really struggle in this because parents love their children more than they love one another often. And often this is a result result of self-preservation. One can think, my child will always be my child, but my spouse may one day no longer be my spouse. And friends, this is the Pharisees' worldview. We don't live there. We don't live in the Pharisees' worldview. We must look at marriage not like the Pharisees who ask, is divorce lawful? But like Jesus who says, marriage is a covenant. And covenants are relationships where both parties are committed to the perpetuity of the relationship. As a matter of fact, marriages resemble the relationship of Christ and the church. And how should we, as the church, relate to Christ? We should hold fast to Him. We should hold fast to the gospel. Hebrews 10, 23, listen to how similar the language is. It's not the same word, but listen to how similar the language is. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for we, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the promise. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to your wife. So just as believers hold fast to Christ, to faith, husbands, you should hold fast to your wives. Now, in Mark, Jesus does not mention any allowance for divorce. So since Mark doesn't emphasize this, I won't emphasize this much in my message today, but I will briefly mention what are known as exception clauses elsewhere because I think it's important for us to see this. In Matthew 5 and 19, Jesus says that divorce is allowed in the case of sexual immorality. The word here is pornea. It is a broad word, but I think Jesus really is thinking of adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul mentions abandonment, specifically for the faith. So I think the Bible does, the New Testament does provide two exception clauses for divorce. I think adultery and abandonment are two ways of breaking a covenant. The desire should always be to reconcile. However, sometimes divorce is allowed, permitted. But I think it's interesting that even looking at these exception clauses, these two areas match well as opposites to the promises that are made in marriage, right? If a person abandons his or her spouse, this person, instead of leaving father and mother, is leaving the spouse. That's the opposite of what the covenant Uh, to be. It's the opposite of what God's design is. If a person commits adultery, this person, instead of holding fast to his or her spouse, is holding fast to another person. This, too, is the opposite of God's design. But Jesus says, if God has joined it together, do not let men they are asunder. Jesus even goes on to explain to his disciples in verses 10 through 12 that leaving your wife and your husband and marrying another is adultery. These are very hard words and a very high standard. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of exception clauses. The right thing for us to do is always to remain married to the person we're married to. Persevere in your relationship, the relationship that you have right now, Until death do you part. The love of a husband for a wife must be filled with faithfulness, perseverance, and long suffering. Because the love of a husband for a wife is a picture of the love of Christ for the church. And how committed is Christ to the church? His commitment led him to die for the church. So friends... Marriage is hard, 
relationships are hard, they can cost our lives. Someone once said that marriage is like a walk in the park, Jurassic Park that is. <laughs> marriage is hard. But Jesus is not calling us to do something he's not willing to do himself. Jesus gave himself up for us so that we may learn to give ourselves up for one another. In Ephesians 5, Paul quotes from Genesis 2 again, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus applied this verse to marriage. But now, Paul applies this verse to a different relationship. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, our marriages are much greater than who we are. Our marriages are spotlights that point the world to the everlasting love of our Creator. Our marriage are spotlights that point the world to the everlasting love of our Redeemer. Therefore, persevere just as God perseveres. So if, you're going, if you are going to in any way resemble Christ, if we are going to in any way resemble Christ, we're going to need grace. We're going to need much grace. But I have good news. God has infinite grace to give us so we can walk faithfully just as he is faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, how we need your grace. Relationships are hard. Marriage is hard. There's so much brokenness in this world because of relationships. But Father, your word tells us that you give more grace. And we're thankful for that. I pray, Lord, that the marriages in our church today would experience your grace. Father, I pray that you would cause us to persevere, to embrace long-suffering, to embrace faithfulness. Father, I pray that our church would be bastions of the truth of the gospel. The light of Christ would shine brightly through us. Father, I pray for lives that are broken here among us today. I pray, Father, that we would all know that in Christ our brokenness is made whole. Father, I pray that we would know your grace and that we would know your mercy. And that, Father, in whatever life circumstance we may find ourselves today, we may find in Christ all we need. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing now.